Welcome, everybody. Rich Robinson here with John Rittner, and we're on the Exponential Book Tour. So we're talking to John about his new book, Positively Irritating, and uh, the strapline embracing a post-Christian world to form a more faithful and innovative church. And the, the desire and the dream of this was well before COVID. So this isn't just a COVID response. This is 10, 15, 20 years of ministry. So we're going to take the next 60 minutes digging into John's story. So who is the, the man, the author, in terms of the practitioner that's written? We're going to dig into the title, the metaphor, the process. And, and the hope is over these 60 minutes that there is some theology and theory that stretches your thinking, but also there's some practice. There's some practical tools and tactics to help you to journey on. So, John. It is wonderful, wonderful to be with you. Our paths have crossed over many years in the Forge world, in 5Q with APEST, Movement Leaders Collective. So we've done lots together. But just give us a little bit of background, a little bit of backdrop in terms of your story, who you are, where you are, just so we know who's on the call. Go for it. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Rich. It's so great to see you. I miss our times together and I uh, always love how you frame and structure conversation. So I'm in good hands today and excited to be with you in this time. Um, I am currently pastoring in Hollywood, California at a uh, community called Ecclesia Hollywood. That's primarily uh, artists in the entertainment industry and creatives who are uh, trying to kind of live the Hollywood dream and add beauty and value to the world through their uh, storytelling gifts. Uh, I um, grew up in New York, ended up going to college in Williamsburg, Virginia at William & Mary, came to Christ in a fraternity house felt a call to ministry and uh, ended up doing 10 years in kind of a mega church, uh, three years in a micro church planting setting over in Brussels, and now have been here in LA for six years with my uh, wife and two teen kids and surviving COVID like everyone else, waiting for the school year to end and hoping my kids will uh, not have to do school on the other side of the wall anymore <laughs> in the fall and things like that. So uh, it's great to be with you. Oh, that's good. We feel, feel your joy and your pain, John, definitely. And uh, and before we get to the serious stuff, I want to just a couple, couple of quick questions. So one thing you're positive about at the moment and one thing that irritates you. Oh, my goodness. Um, you know, I think that one of the things that's been positive for me is I've kind of discovered a new mission field um, during uh, this time. You know, I'm a big believer in kind of the third spaces of life, those social spaces or neutral spaces where followers of Jesus can engage with the world and on, on kind of common ground. And so um, they took away the ability for me to watch sports at a sports bar, you know, sports pub. They took away for me to go to sporting events or even play basketball. Uh, and so me and a couple friends who I knew started a uh, Friday night uh, poker group um, with a, a couple of guys and they started inviting all their old college fraternity buddies. And next thing you know, this Friday night Zoom group, you know, kind of nickel and dime poker, just an excuse for guys to hang out, um, became this fantastic uh, event. And, um, and the irony is one of the guys is now asking to perform his wedding this fall, you know? And wow. so I've never, I've never met the guy in person, but I'm so excited to uh, perform his wedding and be with him. And so I was just saying to my wife, isn't it crazy how COVID actually allowed us to form a new relationship, you know? So I think that's the uh, positive. The irritant is that I, I really believed that uh, the COVID reality would lead to a, a decrease in housing prices in Los Angeles, that maybe it would kind of thin the crowd a little bit. Maybe we would be able to buy a home and Instead, as you read in the news, you know, it's the highest, yeah, 23 caps on homes. And so we've just kind of let that dream die again. 
or I uh, again I feel I feel your pain and what one more question before we go and, and I want to ask you about the the title the metaphor and and the thrust of the book what what are you reading at the moment we're going to talk about your book before we get to yours what what are one or two of the things on your bookshelf or your bedside table at the moment that you're enjoying you know, I, I've been fascinated by a book uh, by Richard Beck, who's a professor, I believe, at Asbury Seminary called Unclean. Uh, the subtitle is Meditations on Purity. But really, it's a book about uh, disgust psychology. It, he literally talks about kind of human body fluids and what, why does saliva feel normal in our mouth? But why is it gross once we externalize it as spit? And why do we not want to swallow it? And talks about boundary crossing and, and uses kind of that disgust psychology metaphor is a way of talking about the holiness of Jesus and how Jesus's holiness was a boundary crossing holiness, mm, not a boundary wow. creating holiness. And so it's really helped me kind of understand a lot of that ancient Near East culture and then apply it to some of the boundaries that we create in churches today. Um, and so I've loved that. And I've been kind of using that to uh, re-engage with the gospels a little bit. And that's been a lot of fun. Oh, I love it. Wow. And so talk to us about the book. So positively irritating. You've got title. There's the metaphor of the pearl, a beautiful little imagery on the front that I know your daughter had a hand in. So lo love to hear just a little bit more of how did you land on the title? Why the title? Talk to us about the metaphor. And again, why the metaphor? Paint, paint a picture for us of why, why we have it in our hands. Yeah. You know, uh, years ago, I kind of heard this scientific fact that always stuck with me. And um, you know, imagine you're walking on the beach one day by yourself and, uh, you know, the wind stirs up and, and all of a sudden a grain of sand blows into your eye. Just that tiny little microscopic grain of sand, as it gets into your eye, it becomes an irritant and your body has a, a natural reaction to an irritant like that. Your, your tear ducts start to water, you, you kind of rub. The, the goal is to figure out how do I get this irritant out of my eye as fast as I can because your brain begins to spiral that if I don't remove the irritant, it could lead to infection. It could actually lead to blindness, right? You might get all anxious about what's going to happen if I don't get rid of the irritant. The irony is that same grain of sand, if it had kind of blown in the other direction and settled to the bottom of the ocean and found its way inside of a different organism, not the eye, but an oyster, that grain of sand will create an abrasion on the surface of the mantle of the oyster that the oyster will not try to expel or extract, but it will actually embrace. And it will come around that irritant and begin to coat it with a substance called nacre and layer upon layer of nacre will build until eventually we have this thing of beauty in the world called a, a pearl. And I remember thinking, how crazy is that? The, the power of that analogy is that it's not the irritants that determines the outcome, it's the response of the organism. And so irritants just reveal the nature of an organism. Are you an organism that can adapt to irritants, you know, and embrace them and create beauty in the world? Or are you an organism that is too rigid and inflexible to adapt and your only response is to expel it or else you'll get infected? And so, you know, my own journey from going from kind of working in a, an American megachurch in the, in the South, where we were at the center of culture, where everything kind of flowed to us, every problem people had in society tended to find a way to our doorstep, someone wanting to meet with a pastor because we had answers. That began to change in my life. And I began to sense that this change was irritating me, you know, and 
I began to kind of wrestle with what was my response to that irritation going to be. And so for me, this is a book about my own journey of dealing with the irritant of post-Christianity and how I see these two possible options and how I'm really trying to steer and encourage the church of Jesus to be more of an oyster in the world that embraces irritants and creates beauty than an eye that simply becomes infected by the irritants around us. And I mean, as we said, COVID in the last 12 months has just the cultural landscape, spiritual landscape, our emotional, internal and external uh, landscapes have just had so, so much disruption. But this, this is a, a book that's not a response to the last 12 months. It's many, many years in the making. So just give us a little bit of the, the story and the journey, because as, as we read books, we can read them in the moment mm-hmm. and just sort of have that, we, we kind of the myth of it's this book in this moment, but we forget the, the years of blood, sweat, tears, prayer, learning, journey journey that goes in so as as other people are coming on i just want to welcome you're going to hear from john we're talking to john rittner positively irritating embracing a post-christian world to form a more faithful and innovating church and so john just talk to us then about that journey sort of the journey that has been encapsulated on the pages so it's not only given you the title of the book but it's obviously given you the content of the book so just talk to us you you kind of briefly mentioned the sort of Mega church, micro church, back in Hollywood. So there's there's different. There's the states. There's Europe. There's the states in there, and sort of glossed over quickly in the intro. So just give us a little bit more of your journey, what it was, and what what you've learned. Yeah, yeah. I, I graduated seminary in Chicago in um, let's see, in 2002, at kind of the maybe the height of kind of the the uh, the church growth movement, kind of the attractional mega church. You know, I was. In, in seminary, being able to attend churches like Willow Creek and Harvest Bible Chapel and thousands upon thousands on Sunday morning. And, and to be honest, as a, a young leader who was kind of wondering, how do you make a difference for Jesus in the world? I saw these models and images and thought, wouldn't this be amazing to kind of be in this orbit, in this sphere? And so um, I went back to my home church where I'd come to Christ and worked for my mentor who had discipled me for years. And, and the church at that time was um, growing from kind of 400, 500 to a spot where eventually we were, you know, running 4,000 on Easter. You know, that's how you, that's how you say it in America, the big church, you know, what are you, what are you running? Running 4,000 on Easter and just under 3,000 on a, on a Sunday morning. And um, pardon the vacuuming that's happening in the hallway of my apartment. This is the beauty of urban living. If it's not a, a dump truck out on the street in front of me, it's a vacuum behind me, but. Um, okay. So, you know, embrace the irritants, Rich. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm, I'm, wait, I'm waiting for the cat to walk past or the, the kids to come in, somebody to make coffee. It, it's a COVID world. We're all good. Don't worry. So, um, you know, so honestly, I, I spent 10 years working in this kind of, you know, what I've heard people call like the, redu- the religious industrial complex, right? I mean, I had every job you could imagine in this large church from director discipleship to men's ministries. I ran women's ministries for six months in an interim, you know, tried not to mess that up, you know, and just equip ladies as best I could without screwing it up. Until eventually I was basically the number two pastor, kind of the second teaching pastor, associate pastor in this organization. And, you know, in one sense, outwardly, I was living the American church dream. I mean, everything was up and to the right and thriving and growing. And I was so excited about it. But at the same time, I began to realize like all of the external success 
was coming along with an internal um, struggle. You know, there was something in my spirit that wasn't healthy about me. And I began to even kind of question, is this really healthy what we're doing? You know, and it wasn't the people. I loved all the people. In fact, I was part of leading them into what we were doing. But I began to sense that the next generation wasn't nearly as interested in doing church the way we were doing church. College kids just weren't coming anymore. The place, the Sunday morning experience didn't attract them. I began to recognize that my heart was to kind of impact the community and see lost people come to Christ. And yet most of my time was basically just kind of creating programs for existing Christians. You know, I mentioned the book that I said to my wife one day, I feel like the program director on a Christian cruise ship, you know, that it's my job to entertain and make sure we all have a great time so that they write a good review when they leave. And I thought, this isn't why I got into ministry. I came to Christ in a fraternity house. I wanted to see frat boys, you know, come to Christ. And, um, and then honestly, what really I think shook me up, Rich, was I began to realize in my own heart that my own motivation to follow Jesus and trust him and, and, and be more like him was being edged out by this motivation to um, attain a level of status and success, to, to be that guy on the platform you know, and, um, and, and to kind of, you know, in a world where Jesus as the king says, this is my kingdom. And, you know, one day the whole world will be mine. I realized in my heart, I had this sense of like, I want to stand over 3000 people and think one day this room will be mine. And it, it was like, ah, that is what's going on. You know, is there something about the way we're doing church that's forming something in me that is not ultimately healthy. And if that's true, is it possible that I'm forming something in other people that's not healthy either, you know? And so that kind of crisis moment for me after 10 years led me to be open to what God might have. And by his grace, we had a friend who invited us over to uh, join their team in Brussels, Belgium. Um, and they were engaging in a totally different world. They were wrestling not with, you know, how do you reach people in the Christianized American Bible Belt South, but how do you engage with a post-Christian European secular culture where Christianity, you know, was the dominant narrative and metaphor, but it's passed on. You know, that culture has been there and done that. They have the cathedrals to prove it and they're not interested in Christianity anymore. And so what he said to me was, you know, I think you might bring some gifts, but I also think you might really enjoy the ways we're reimagining church. And I realized, you know what? Europe is the future of America. Like I can see that what you are already living in is what I'm beginning to experience here. And so I just had this God whisper one day, Rich, what if you could go to the future of America and mm. experience what culture is going to become like? And what if you could experiment in that culture and try to figure out what does the church need to become? Who do we need to be in order to be Christ-like and you know, shape the kingdom in that culture? and then return to America one day and help a local church on that journey themselves. And so that be kind of became our call. We went on a missionary visa and helped plant micro churches, um, kind of neighborhood expressions of uh, faith around the city that engaged only once a month altogether for like a worship service, but spent the majority of their time kind of deeply embedding as missionaries in the local culture and adding value. And so um, three years of doing that and you know, experimenting with something, trying it, failing miserably, you know, trying to apply my paradigm that I had to a problem 
and realizing it just didn't fit and then having to deconstruct that paradigm and build a new one. All of that kind of learning and unlearning and relearning experience for us. Uh, and then eventually, you know, that story came full circle where we felt like it was time to, to complete the journey, to come back to America um, like we had always felt was going to happen and to help a church do that. And so um, about six years ago, we accepted an invitation to come to Hollywood and work with a, a church filled with creatives who are engaging a very post-Christian culture, yeah. definitely a post-Christian industry in the entertainment industry of Hollywood, and to kind of help them reimagine how the church can shape itself and form itself to be more life-giving in the source of this kind of culture. And I, I'm going to just ask you a little bit. You talked about and mentioned the word paradigm shift. So to unlearn and relearn the, the ways of thinking, those sort of mental maps, the short, the, the kind of church shortcuts that we have and assumptions we make and worlds that we produce. I'm, I'm going to ask you about that. But before, before we go there, yeah. the U.S., Europe, Europe being the future of the states, you, you mentioned on the front of the book, the post-Christian world, and you've mentioned it a few times. Just give us a, a framework. What's your understanding of a post-Christian world? And then why and how does that present itself as an irritant that can actually produce that pearl? Yeah. People will say to me, I don't know what post-Christianity is. And I say, well, actually, I think you do. You just think of it in terms of pre-Christianity. And here's what I mean. Um, if you think about the, the cultural context of the first century that Jesus appeared in and the book of Acts that we read and we understand very well, you have a, a faith movement that is existing in a culture where these people who are following Jesus have no power. They have no political power, no real social capital. They have very little money. They don't own any properties. There are no uh, religious professionals within their movement. You know, there are Jewish priests and Pharisees, but not followers in the way of Jesus. They don't have professionals yet. They're living in homes. And to be honest, they're being persecuted even for their faith. And so there's a marginalization taking place. That is because their belief system was on the outside of culture. It had not been embraced as the way to view the world. If you know church history, you know that all that changes in about 312 AD with Constantine and has a vision and, you know, ends up kind of the Edict of Milan, basically taking this Christian fringe movement and mainstreaming it, making it kind of the de facto state religion of Rome. Um, and what that does is it now gives power and prestige and recognition to something that's been on the fringes. And ever since then, Western culture has been defined and built around the ethics, the meta narrative, the values, you know, the belief system of Christianity. And that has gone now for two, about 2000 years until, you know, the last 100 years or so, maybe 200 years in Europe, where forces like the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution, and, and now I would say even kind of the global um, world we live in, have begun to erode that. And now you're in a, a, a world again, where Christianity in Europe is no longer the, at the center. You know, it, it has been squeezed to the sides a little bit. And so, you know, people are not being born Christians. They're not being baptized into the church, uh, you know, without a choice because that's what their parents always did. Um, you know, as I'm a sports guy. And so, you know, the analogy that I remember, I think Brad Briscoe shared one day that always stuck in my head was, you know, Christianity used to have home field advantage. 
You know, when you're playing a home match, you know that, man, the fans are rooting for you. You know every blade of grass on that pitch. You have a confidence. And often the, the road team feels like the outsiders and you just know, hey, we, we're going to win. Well, we've lost that. And so every time we engage in culture now, we're engaging as a visiting team. We're engaging as more of an outsider. We're, we're trying to navigate space that we're not as familiar with and that we don't have all the fans cheering us on. And so there's different ways that that gets expressed, whether it's in politics or social world or, you know, morality or things like that. Um, but the bottom line is it's, it's possible now for you to grow up in a post-Christian culture and feel totally confident that you can identify uh, or you can answer the key questions of life, like what's my purpose? Where do I come from? What happens when I die? Um, who am I? That you can answer all those questions without having to look to the heavens to find the answer. That you can simply look around you and think in terms of human flourishing or living your best life now, and that that's enough for you to get out of bed in the morning. And Rich, as crazy as it may seem, if you look back on the history of human culture, that's the first time in human history that that's really ever been the case. Any culture around the world has always looked to the heavens, to a God or the gods or the spiritual world to answer those questions. They've always rooted their meaning in something spiritual and supernatural. But as Charles Taylor, you know, the great philosopher says, it's as if, you know, society has kind of cut those strings, you know, that attach humans to God and said, you know what, we can do this on our own now. And so you have now these kind of secular answers to all of life's deepest questions. Um, and so that just changes how you do church because people don't naturally think that the church is the institution that has all the answers for them. They're going other places. And so, you know, the scales or the, the field has been tilted, not towards people coming to church, but away so that if anything now, culture tends to drift away from you. And so if your entire paradigm was, well, we'll just kind of put on some shows and services and Sunday mornings and wait for them to come because eventually life is going to get hard enough and or they'll have kids or they'll have a messy divorce. Something will happen morally. They'll come to us. They're not coming. And so, as I say in my book, what I learned in Europe was post-Christian people don't go to church services, period. They just don't. And so that paradigm is one that we have built so much of our attractional church around and it's one that we have to really rethink yeah so as as i listen to you what you're expressing is the learning of both your your understanding of the world's paradigm the world's view of itself of success of identity as you say that actually it's i am the answer or i can find the answer somewhere else what i'm pursuing is not necessarily the transcendence or the engagement with the divine it's far more my experience is the hedonistic or the, the achievement-based identity yeah. or the performance-based identity. So there's a shifting worldview, but there's also then the paradigm in terms of what is church and then how do we, how do we express church? So we, we're going to continue on, and I'm going to just ask you just to name some of those key thinking shifts, those paradigm shifts. How has your mind changed of what is church or what is discipleship or what, what is significant for us as we navigate this, this new terrain? So we've 
come to a, a land that we're unfamiliar with. The maps of the old don't work and we're not sure. It's kind of looking at the moon and the stars to work out where on earth to go and where, where's food, where's shelter. So there's a new world, whether we like it or not. And I'll ask you to talk to that. But before I do that, I just want to welcome others that are coming on the call. So we know that there'll be some people who jumped on a little bit on. So we are just, so just under halfway through with John Rittner, author of Positively Irritating. So embracing a post-Christian world to form a more faithful and innovative shirt. So just digging into John's experience, the US to Europe and back to US, some of the things that he's learned through his travels, his trials, some of the, the tests as well in that space. So there's lots there. And John's just been talking about the shift in terms of culture and then what that means for us in terms of the church. And there's questions that are coming in on the chat bar. And so I'm going to ask John one more question and then we're going to pick up some of those questions. So do put on the chat bar and Brooks will be feeding them through to us as well. So we want this to be a dialogue as well. So John, just talk to us about some of these key shifts so rather than taking yesterday's answers for today or tomorrow's problems and sort of yesterday's map for a new terrain, what, what are some of the shifts? Just name some of them for us, because my guess would be most people will have a sense of resonance with what you're saying, that they'll be able to see it and, and somewhere deep in them that there'll be a yes, I, I see this, I can engage with this. But also, if we're honest, there'll be both a sense of being overwhelmed or underwhelmed by it, <laughs> a sense of, oh, my word, where do I start? Or, oh, really, I, I wasn't trained for this and I've just mastered that world and now, now it's changed. So just talk, talk to us, name some of those shifts and then speak to sort of the how, how to engage with them. Yeah, I love, I love you. You mentioned kind of maps. And even when you said overwhelmed, it reminds me, you know, um, every married couple, you know, you have nights where one person stays up a little later to finish a show or to do some work and the other person goes to bed and you have that moment where, you know, you try to sneak into the dark bedroom at night to climb into your bed without waking up your spouse, right? And, and in your mind, it's pitch black, but you have a mental map of what your bedroom looks like. You know, it's three steps, two steps. Well, recently my wife, <clears throat> my wife went out and bought like a new little mini dresser to put in our bedroom and put it just inside the door. And I've had this instant experience now two or three times where I've opened the door in the pitch black, I've snuck in and just slammed my foot right into this new dresser because my map doesn't fit the reality. And it is an irritating experience, right? And then it makes you stop and question everything. Like you don't wanna take it, you're like, well, what else? What else is in here that I don't know about that is now a threat, you know? And so it takes you a while to make a new map of this new terrain. So I love that you, you know, kind of think through paradigms that way. You know, um, I often kind of start with two that, that were the biggest ones for me personally, as someone who had been in professional ministry for 10 years. And, um, you know, the first is simply thinking through the role of the large group gathering. Um, or, you know, the way I often describe it is when, when I was in my old church, uh, community and we had our staff every now and then we would get out a whiteboard and and we would draw out a rectangle and we would say you know can we all articulate our disciple making pathway you know what is our what is the the structure that we have in place to take you know the person who is far from god and make them into a fully christ-formed disciple right you know if they were to enter into our community and pop out 10 years later on the other side what happens in our community? What happens behind the walls of our factory? And of course, this is a very modern industrial illustration, but it fit what we were doing. And every time we talked about that, 
the first step, the entrance was always a worship service. Maybe it was a, a relationship that led to an invitation to a worship service, or maybe it was a, a Super Bowl breakfast or a golf tournament that was in the community that led to an invitation to a worship service. But really, we believe that the good stuff started to happen in a Sunday worship gathering, you know, and in a Christian culture where most people had some experience with a worship service. They had grown up in a church. They'd been to a, a wedding or a funeral. They knew what would, it looked like within those walls. They had some understanding that there would be a little bit of teaching and maybe some singing and, you know, and there'd be some mixing with friends and maybe some coffee and, you know, that it would be a safe environment for them. The worship gathering was a place that you might accept an invitation to. And if you moved somewhere, it's a place you'd be looking for, maybe if you were already a follower of Jesus. Then I got to Europe and realized that the space of a worship gathering is a cross-cultural experience in post-Christianity. Most people I met had never been to church. They go to a funeral, it's held in a public meeting hall with an MC. There's not a religious element to it. When they got married or wanted to celebrate a friend's marriage, it was done at the town hall, done by a magistrate. It wasn't a religious ceremony. None of the rituals and cultures, the cultural elements of, of uh, religion existed. And so they were secularized. And so when I would invite them to church, often they'd point to the giant national cathedral, right? That seats 10,000 people where the king would get married. And they'd say like, like there? And I'd go, no, no not there. Um, no, no, no. Like, and I would try to describe it. And then eventually they would just find a polite way to say, no, no, thank you. You know, and the, the way I originally, eventually I, I couldn't get my head around it. And then I realized it's not that they don't want to come. It's that they can't imagine what it was going to, what it will be like in there. Cause it's such a cultural gap. And the only thing that made sense to me was thinking about it in terms of another religion, that if I was a American suburban dad and I had a, a Muslim family move in next door and they built a relationship. And then one day, you know, the Muslim dad, Joseph said, Hey, John, you know, We'd love to invite your church, your, I mean, your family with us to mosque. And I think you'll like our imam. He's young and funny. He tells stories. And, you know, th there's a great kids program where, my, where your kids can learn about Allah and what Allah says about life. And, you know, we've got a, a sweet chai tea bar out in the lobby. And here's a, here's a coupon for a free tea when you get there. And, you know, this invitation, no matter how well polished or no matter how genuine, at the core of it, is a religion I'm not familiar with in a space that I've never entered into, and therefore a culture that doesn't naturally inspire um, comfort, it inspires a little bit of anxiety. Like, I don't know how to behave there. I take my shoes off. Um, I, I've been to mosques in Turkey. My wife had to put a head covering on. Is that expect? Can my wife sit with me? And, I, you know, all these questions. And my reaction would probably be like, well, thanks, Joseph, but you know, that's just kind of not our thing, you know? Um, and that's kind of what people say in Europe. Hey, thanks for inviting us to church, but it's just not our thing. And here's what began to dawn on me. At first I was kind of like, okay, no big deal. They're not gonna come to our service. And then I began to realize, well, wait a minute. My entire disciple making factory begins with the Sunday service. And so if they don't come to my Sunday gathering, they're never going to experience the professionals who I rely on to do the Bible teaching. They're not going to engage in the property where we 
hose or house all the disciple making programs. And all of a sudden, they're never going to kind of get into our process. And so what I realized was I, the, the primary tool in my tool belt, which was the invitation to church, didn't work. And therefore, I kind of realized, I don't know what to do. And, and what I, as I began to look around, and honestly, Rich, learn from guys like you and other leaders in Europe, what I began to realize was the paradigm shift that you needed to make in a post-Christian culture was to recognize that as Sundays in institutional churches being decentered, um, that the, the only tool that makes disciples are disciple-making people. That it's the same thing we see in the first century in the book of Acts. It's a movement of individual disciple-making people living out the kingdom of God, the life of Jesus, and you know, creating relational credibility with people around them through acts of service and love and blessing and sacrifice. And so, you know, professionals, property, programs aren't going to work anymore. And that's what I'm seeing now even here in Hollywood is, you know, I tell my community here, I don't expect you to invite people to church anymore. If you meet someone who's a follower of Jesus and they say they're looking for a community, that's one thing. But I'm, it's not your job to bring all of your people who are not yet followers of Jesus to hear me as a professional. It's my job to equip you to be someone who is capable of making disciples and following the Spirit's prompting out in the world. And so it kind of inverted, the way I think about it is like it inverted the flow of our factory. Instead of thinking of worship and then forming small community and then releasing people on mission, we realized, wait a minute, you got to flip this. You have to begin with engaging in the world on mission and in, in serving and participating in the life of Jesus out in the community and, and you know, giving people a foretaste of, of what the Jesus life could be like where they already live, work, and play. And then you might invite them into a smaller community like, dinner, like a dinner party or a book club or you know, uh, even just a weekly coffee where you discuss life. And then from there, you trust that if the Holy Spirit is working in their life and if Jesus is fulfilling his promises, that Jesus will be the one leading them to become worshipers. And as that happens, they'll be more and more open to some sort of a contextual worship gathering. It may not look like what you think of with rows and choirs and robes and, you know, uh, scripture songs or, you know, whatever your format is. But we're trusting that God is still making disciples and he's still making worshipers in the world. And that eventually there'll be an opportunity to help those people worship Jesus. So, for me, that was the first one. I call it inverting the disciple-making pathway. Yep. And, and then I think the second one for me is just uh, a deeper understanding or a new paradigm around what is the gospel? You know, what do we mean when we say share the gospel? Because once I realized that I, as a person, not a professional, was going to have to go out in the world and make disciples, my first thought was, well, no problem. I'll just share the gospel with people because I know how to do that. Uh, and then I realized... I'm never really getting a chance to share the gospel. No one, is, no one is coming to me and presenting their life in such a way that the gospel is an answer to their problems. And as I researched that in my own mind and thinking, well, when did I get to share the gospel as a pastor? I realized it was almost always in a situation where someone felt guilty, where they felt bad about themselves, where they had violated some sense of a, a moral standard. You know, they'd had an affair, they had been caught gambling, they you know, something had happened where they came to see me and they felt bad about themselves. And I was able to present the forgiveness and grace of Jesus in a way 
that sounded like good news to them. Mm. The irony I found as I learned from my friend Marcus, who's a pastor in Gothenburg, Sweden, is there is no sin and guilt in Europe, meaning the experience of guilt, the experience that there is a absolute moral standard that I violated is not present in secular culture. It's just a lifestyle choice. You know, you're making your choices, I'm making my choices, and we agree to tolerate each other and not judge each other. And so even if my choices kind of may not lead to the outcome, I don't think of them in terms of violating a standard that God has. I just think of them in terms of, well, I should probably adjust, you know? And so I didn't have anyone in my life who felt bad about themselves or felt a sense of guilt or shame about their choices. And therefore, I had no one to share good news with. And that made me realize, I think it's Lisa Sharon Harper who, who has a great line who says, if the good news doesn't sound like good news to people who need to hear the good news, then maybe you need to reevaluate what your good news is. And I realized these people, they, they, they need a relationship with Jesus, but I can't explain Jesus in a way that sounds like good news to them. All I know how to do is to try to first convince them that they're sinners, first convince them that what they're doing is wrong, and then say, but wait, now I have good news. You know, once you're convicted. And so it led me on my own journey of kind of re-understanding a, a more holistic picture of the gospel and going back to the gospels themselves, the stories of Jesus and realizing that the gospel that Jesus told and he shared with his disciples was the gospel of the kingdom of God. It was not about individual piety. It was not about individual forgiveness of sins. It was about a, a culture, a world, a kingdom of shalom, of peace, and a kingdom that he was creating that was in opposition to the empire, the Roman kingdom that they saw, where the values of power and greed and lust and oppression were being inverted by values like love and peace and humility. And that Jesus was the king who was ushering in this new kingdom. And if you wanted to enter the kingdom, I'd love to introduce you to the king concept, you know? And so um, kind of getting my mind around that and beginning to help me reshape and reform kind of how I talk about uh, the, the, the kingdom of God and also what does it mean to accept the good news that Jesus offers us was really helpful for me. But again, I spent so many days and weeks stubbing my toe against this new paradigm and getting frustrated that someone had put a dresser in the lane that I used to walk in and who would do this and then going, all right, I've got to find a way to embrace these irritants and say, it's not the dresser's fault. I just need a new map, you know? And I think that's where the, the oxymoron of positively irritating came from was, we just need to embrace irritants and have a positive view on them because they have the power to become very redemptive if we lean into them and embrace them. That's good. So that, yeah, the inverting, the flipping of the discipleship piece, don't just attract to and then do the, the mechanistic kind of program class information exchange, but actually release, empower a movement of disciples who are disciple makers. And then what does that look like to embody and explain the gospel in a way that's culturally relevant rather than just circumstantial that they've inherited? Really helpful. And just pulling out two or three of the questions on the chat. So just that the, there's no ignoring COVID. <laughs> there's no ignoring the last 12 months. And, and that that disruption and there's 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 some inversion going on just out of necessity and, and does not design, but more just circumstantial of 
we can't attract everyone. We can't gather in the building. Everyone is out. This is sort of happening to us uh, by by circumstance rather than by design. So what what just your wisdom, your observations, both in terms of Ecclesia in Hollywood, but also just more broadly in the, the relationships that you have. Are, are you seeing people come back to church? What, what would be your words to, to churches that are scrambling to be more attractional to gather people back and on the flip side of that what would you say to churches that are that are starting to see this as an opportunity for that inversion that flipping that that releasing so just talk to us a little bit about the if covid is that grain of sand i oyster what what's your reflection on the last 12 months and the opportunities and challenges it presents yeah, yeah, absolutely. And again, um, I won't make too many um, assumptions based on life in Los Angeles because, as you know, we've been we were kind of one of the first to shut down. We've been one of the last to reopen, and um, and so you know, uh, our local community here has only kind of had one in person gathering, and it was outdoors, and we're still navigating that. But you know, again, I, I tend to think in terms of pictures and, and metaphors, and even as you're describing this reality of kind of scattering. And then the impulse to to get everyone back together, it reminds me of a library, you know, and imagine, you know, a local pastor or a local church leader is kind of like a librarian who's responsible for the resource of God's people or God's of these books. Right. And each one of them has a unique story and they have something to add in the world. And and in one sense, the way you're going to make disciples in post-Christianity is not by getting all the books on the shelf of the library so that we can gather on a Sunday morning and say, look, 100% of the books are in the building right now. You know, my job is done as a librarian. I know where all my books are, they're here. No, no, no. The goal of a librarian who really wants to make the world come alive with knowledge and inspiration and stories is to get the books out in circulation. I mean, imagine a librarian who one night could close the doors and look around and say, there are no books here. They're all in circulation. They're all adding value to the world. Now, granted, we're going to have a rhythm of bringing them back so we can bind them up and check on their covers and make sure they're not torn and, you know, and, and find ways to care for them. But that rhythm of keeping books in and out, in and out in circulation is so important. Most large churches tend to always focus on the keep bringing them in and keep them on the shelf so we can, you know, do something with them here. But again, if the, the average customer is not coming in to a library to get books anymore, you know, then the real goal is to get them out in the world into the hands of people who might even share them with others, you know, who might say, hey, borrow my library book. I'll bring it back later. Yeah, yeah. Or the, the old bookmobile, which, you know, in my language would become like the food truck version of a library. We talk a lot about food truck churches versus restaurant churches. You know, hey, if you won't come to the library, we'll bring the library to you. And so... What I'd say is COVID has naturally emptied the shelves of, of yep. our people. It's naturally put them out in the world. And so I think for us as local pastors, it, first of all, that's a little bit of an identity crisis for us because so much of our job as pastors slash librarians, so to speak, is to kind of have the people around us and care for them. But don't think about when are we going to reopen our church? Think about the fact that we have, we have probably planted hundreds, if not thousands, of neighborhood expressions of Jesus during COVID. We have forced people to think about how do we add value to our neighborhood? How do we engage in the life of Jesus here? And how do we experience new resources like videos or, you know, we started things like COVID trios, small groups of three, 
We've started a, a rule and rhythm of life that we invite people to participate in on their own. You know, we've, we've shared resources to equip them where they already are. Don't, don't lose the potential to leverage that, that sending and equipping impulse, because I'm telling you from my story, that's actually how post-Christian disciples get made is out in the world, not in your religious property and spaces. So again, don't hear what I'm not saying. There's a, you got, you got to always breathe, breathe in and breathe out. You got to have that natural, um, both and coming and going, but COVID has forced a little bit more of the scattering of the church. And so I would say, don't lose that scattering. Think about how do we resource and empower and equip people so that their scattered life is the life of Jesus. You know, that, that, that people would experience Christ in their local communities through these church members in the same way that you used to think somebody would experience Christ through a large worship service on a Sunday morning, right? Maybe a, a taste of the supernatural, maybe an experience of community and love, maybe a, a enough Bible truth that resonated with them. How are our people living that out, you know? Good. And, and the, la the last 15 minutes, John, I'm going to slightly shift, shift gears, uh, picking up a couple of the questions on the sort of how do we do it? Where do we start? What does this look like in an established church, micro churches? There's lots of sort of grounding it. And this is not a quick fix to-do list, plug and play system sort of magic bullet. So we're not suggesting do John's five steps to this, but, but we are saying that there's a flow and a frame that is being tried and tested in both contexts, Europe and, and the States, and lived out locally in your role in terms of Ecclesia, but also in many other coaching, coaching relationships that you have. So in terms of the book, what, what I, what I loved was even, even the four phases, as you talk about the embrace the status quo phase one, start to explore and experiment phase two, create a culture of innovation phase three, and then actually sustain and scale phase four. So there's these four phases, which, as we say, they're not a formula, but they're, they're places where you can just intentionally lean in to this and embrace the irritant rather than try and, try and eject the irritant. So just, just talk to us two, two questions. First question is just give us a little bit more on that flow. So I, I'm listening. I love this. I'm inspired by this. I'm challenged by this. I think yes to this. Well, where do I start, John? And tell me about this flow of these four phases. So talk, first question, talk a little bit about those four phases. And then the second part, which is a subset of the question, just give us a little bit of context of established church, some of the challenges, pitfalls, opportunities, microchurch, what does that look like? How do we get people started in terms of their neighborhood expression? So Four phases and then a little bit of context, micro and existing. Yeah, you know, I, I think, um, you know, that embracing the irritation phase one always has to start in your own individual heart, you know, as a leader. And so recognizing that, um, you know, you're not going to take people somewhere that you haven't gone yourself. And, you know, you're not going to be able to even kind of cast the vision for a better future unless you've tasted it and seen it yourself, which is why my journey was so powerful to kind of go and learn from people. Uh, and so I think the first thing is really go starting your own journey, finding some mentors, reading some books, I mean, get, you know, creating some new maps and then not just intellectually, but experimenting, starting some of your own new practices. How do I engage better as a neighbor? Do I as a pastor know how to make a disciple outside of my professional responsibilities? Do you know what I'm saying? Can I not leverage my platform, but just leverage relational credibility 
and to begin to disciple someone who's not a follower of Jesus into the way of Jesus. You know, do I know how to engage as a missionary? That's a lot of what we talk about is, you know, basically modern day church for us is equipping people to live like cross-cultural missionaries in the same way that we were doing over in Europe. And so you gotta, you don't want to be the story in your church, but you have to start to have some stories. You got to start to be able to have some stories of failure. I tried this. It didn't work. I don't think that that person's talking to me again, you know, or I tried this and oh my gosh, Jesus showed up. And, and then I think the, the mistake people then make is, especially as a leader, because we have access to such large platforms and such kind of, um, you know, uh, what I call like truth dumping spaces, you know, we can get up there and talk for 45 minutes and, you know, who's going to stop us kind of thing is we tend to think in terms of large system wide organizational change first. Um, and I use the analogy of, you know, taking a, an innovative idea and dumping it over our whole community, you know, rather than thinking about diffusing change slowly across a relational network. You know, and 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 I learned this from our good friend Alan Hirsch. You know, who when, when I was in Europe, and I was so excited to come back to America and start this change in a church. And I said to him, "Hey, you know, how many weeks should I wait until I start my missional incarnational sermon series and tell this church that we're going to become a bunch of missionaries? Should I wait one month or maybe three months? You think, you know?" And he just looked at me and laughed and said, "If you do that, you will blow up your church." And I was like. Alan, I'm a much better communicator than that, Alan. Like I'm deeply offended, you know? And what I, and then, you know, I, I just, I'll never forget. He spun the whiteboard and he drew, he drew the old uh, diffusion of innovation chart and kind of walked me through this idea of innovators, early adopters, early majority, late majority laggards, and how every social set is divided into these natural responses to change. And he said, what you really need to do is you need to, find some innovators, a small community, and try to begin to experiment on the fringes of your church. Do it under the cover of darkness. He called them ninjas, which, you know, always to me, I, I remember, I think of a ninja like sneaking around at night, no one knowing what they're doing. Basically, kind of quarantine off this experiment so that it's not a threat to anyone else and begin to experiment and train people to do this. And then eventually maybe add a few more to that. And so that's kind of what we did here at Ecclesia. We used the Forge training material to start with a, a, a cohort of 12 people. And then we started a second cohort. And then our staff and elders began to kind of live and act this way. And eventually we began to get towards that kind of tipping point of 16% where there was a little bit of buzz and there were enough stories for us to share stories of success and stories of new um, rhythms of life with the broader community. And so I think that's the other thing is it's very hard to teach people into new ways of being. Um, you can, the easier ways to kind of inspire them into it and, and, and share with them a story. And this is, I live in the storytelling capital of the world, right? I mean, Hollywood knows this, the way you connect with people is storytelling. And so um, we did a lot of what I call strategic storytelling uh, in years two and three here. And, and for me, that was kind of the going from my own embracing of the irritation experimenting with a small group of early innovators and then the culture creating began to be come through storytelling and the first time we really began to discuss some of these ideas on a sunday morning it was through stories of ordinary people not the ordained pastor you know and i and i i think i share in the book that one of the moments that will always stick with me it was a young guy named jeff who's a actor and who was in our forge group 
and I asked him to share how he was making disciples in his um, uh, acting theater class. And he had some really cool stories of, of disrupting people's understanding of Jesus and, and how he was adding value to their life and how they were curious about why he was doing this. And, and when the message, you know, I, I had given my message, he gave his story and I came down front. And I was so excited to receive, just to receive the people, Rich, who, you know, clearly wanted to go deeper in the profound truths that I had dropped that morning. And there was nobody. Nobody walked up to talk to me. And I just kind of, you know, okay, I'll, I'll sit my coffee and gather my things. And I thought, this is different. And I looked to my left and Jeff had a line 10 deep. And I just, it was like epiphany moment. Oh my gosh, this is it. They want to talk to the ordinary disciple, not the ordained pastor, because his story resonates with them because that's what they're going to do in the world. It's going to look more like that and less like what I just did of 40 minutes of Bible teaching. And so that, you know, those sorts of culture shaping moments became important. And then eventually we've begun to kind of scale and sustain that through things that we call food trucks, which is, you know, not just a, a restaurant where you come and get fed on a Sunday morning, which is how most Sunday services operate. But think about equipping small groups of teams to go live on mission in the world. And if you go to churchinhollywood.com, you can find kind of the food truck explainer video that we created that, that is just a, a way of, again, it's a new mental map. It's a new paradigm. It's a picture of thinking about a new way to do church. So love it. And then just five final pieces, established church. You mentioned yeah. a little bit of don't, avoid the sermon series, go first, identify the ninjas. Uh, just again, I, what if you could do a please don't dot 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 sort of what are some of the places to avoid? And then if if in an established context, people are saying, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to buy the book, I'm going to start the journey. What, what would your encouragement and challenge be to that context? And then also microchurch, food trucks, neighborhood expressions, you've used some of these different terms of what, what church looks like out there rather than in here and in every day rather than just Sunday morning. So just give us a little bit again of, of if either you're a, you're a pastor or a staff member wanting to empower ordinary and everyday disciples, or you are living your faith in a neighborhood and thinking, I'm just praying and making this up as I go along, reading Acts, praying and having a go, what, what would be your words to, to that leader as well? Yeah, my, my book was really written primarily to that first group. It was the, you know, helping pastors of existing churches with more of that um, kind of attractional church growth, 1980s to 2000 um, model or paradigm, helping them uh, begin to innovate and experiment and, and ideally eventually change the culture of the church. And that's my own experience here in Hollywood. Um, it's long, it's slow. Not everyone kind of gets to the other side with you. And there are a lot of wounds along the way in leadership, but, um, but there's also been some really sweet wins and a lot of aha moments. And so um, what I would say is if that's kind of where you are, that's, that's kind of what my book was meant for, is to help you kind of go through that journey and to help you navigate some of the challenges along the way. You know, I, I say one of the chapters is called, you know, the power of starting small. I mean, just think in terms of, you know, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. You know, it's a little bit of leaven that impacts everything. I mean, don't minimize those early adopters, those small wins, those that first group of pioneers, you know, that first great story, the kingdom of God begins small and eventually, you know, expands. And so um, that's what multiplication is all about, you know, so don't get caught up on fast, quick, you know, big metrics. 
celebrate those small wins and stories because I think that's how you ultimately tip culture. And but then I think the second part, and you know, a lot of um, leaders now really are finding the freedom and courage to kind of pioneer out on their own, and they don't have the the resources of the big church, but they have um, you know usually a, a context in mind, like a neighborhood or a people group that they really want to invest in. And I think the thing that I often try to encourage them is continue to resist the old paradigm of relying on a worship gathering, you know? So if you're a church planter, you're a pioneer, you wanna try something new, just keep thinking, how do I engage in mission? How do I serve others? And then how do I form small communities with the people that I'm caring for? And, and do that in a way that doesn't lead to, you know what we need to do? We need a Sunday service, or we need a large launch, or we need to put out our postcards or our brochures. I mean, there's kind of so many churches that are planting, and all they're doing is planting the same model that is, I think, already becoming obsolete, you know? Um, and so you're going to need some way to encourage and equip and sustain the spiritual life of your core community. You're going to need uh, a, a natural, what you know, kind of a, an intimate space discipleship gathering on a Tuesday night or a Thursday night where you pray and you share and you cry and all that. But that's not necessarily something you invite the world to. That's that's something that you know is at your core. Think about engaging the world through acts of mission. You know, so the questions that we have trained our people here to think about is, you know, what would be good news to the people to whom I'm sent. You know, and, and how can I then embody that good news? And then, you know, I realize that that's a weird question to ask your neighbor. Maybe you want to get your neighbor involved in this. And you say, hey, what's good news for our apartment complex? And they're like, what? And so one day I heard a podcast and I borrowed this language um, and I said, here's a better way of thinking about it. What if you asked your neighbor what sucks in your life? They're going to they'll tell you what sucks in their life. Right. And then you said, does it? Do you find that it sucks for anybody else? You know, yeah, everyone hates this problem. Well, what could we do together for, you know, if we made a commitment of a year or something to try to make it suck less for everyone? You know, I'm telling you, your neighbors, your friends, there's something that sucks at your kid's school. There's something that sucks at, at your neighbor's office place or something that sucks about your, your cul-de-sac, you know? And if you were to begin to engage your neighbors and say, could we work together to make it suck less? That's, again, that's not the whole gospel. That's not going to, you know, usher them into Jesus's presence. But that is an expression of mission and of God's kingdom, you know, the brokenness of the world being redeemed, the restoration of all things, you know. Um, and I think that as you serve alongside them and show that you share their concerns for the world that they live in, and that means that you value them as a contributor and that they have answers just like you have answers and you're a co-collaborator, that relationship forms the basis of a, of a discipling relationship that you can then kind of continue to grow by creating deeper community and eventually bringing in topics around Jesus and what he means to you. It's great, John. Really, really good. And I, I've read the book numerous times, been part of the process. So I, I know that you're just scratching the surface and we, we've had an hour. We're at minute, minute 59 of 60. So the, the final thing I would say is thank, thank you for your time. Appreciate not just this 60 minutes, but the many years of experimentation, endeavor, and then the, the commitment to put this into writing. I know it's no easy feat and small feat to be able to produce the artifact that you've done in terms of positive years. Irritating. 
Final thing to say to those listening. So if you go to www.johnrittner.com, so J-O-N-R-I-T-N-E-R.com, you'll be able to connect with John, food truck video, hear more, and actually be able to dialogue with John, but also you're able to get the book. So in terms of it's a slightly cheaper option and is able to be able to, to connect in there. So I'd really encourage you, johnrittner.com, if you've got any questions and then you can find the food truck, you can find the book, you can find the other options to, to connect with John. John, thank you so much. As, as you say, you've had both an experience of the present in North America, the future in Europe, and not trying to produce a formula, but actually to give a framework for people to be able to understand the time that they're in, as you say, embracing the status quo, the opportunity and challenge that this moment presents us with, but also then helping people to navigate courageously, curiously and faithfully into what is next in you. So we thank you so much. So, so good, John. What would be your final word? I'll give you 60 seconds to speak to the audience. What would you say is your final exhortation or encouragement? Yeah, you know, I, th I think the final thing I'd say is I, I know as someone who has a bias towards this apostolic evangelistic, you know, edge, which um, loves casting big vision, which loves pioneering and thinking about the future. I know that the impact I can have on people sometimes is to make them feel exhausted just thinking about this stuff. And so, you know, what I would say to pull back the curtain, even in my own life, is to say that during COVID, I have had to do a lot of soul searching and wrestling with my own rhythms of sustainability. And, and I have been in my own kind of valley, valley of the shadow of death. I, I've had to say to my elders, I don't think I'm doing well. I, I, I need to create some better practices. I need some help. I've, I've had to hire a, a spiritual director and kind of professional coach. I've done some more counseling. I, I, I've tr I lost 20 pounds because I could tell that physically I wasn't doing well. Um, I was sharing with you, I, I do these kind of meditative breathwork exercises where I think about breathing in the life of the spirit and holding it and getting everything I can from God and then breathing out my cares and anxieties because there's incredible physiological benefits from breathing deeper than we do. And so, you know, um, the sustaining yourself as a leader is so essential in all this. It's my, the, my message for today is not just get out there and try hard or you can do it. My message is that Jesus wants to do something in you so that he can then do something through you in the world. And I really believe Jesus has done a new thing in me. And that new thing as it gets lived out has been very intriguing uh, and captivating for others who are looking for a new thing from Jesus as well. So take care of yourself in the journey. I know this is one of the most incredibly challenging seasons to be in pastoral leadership. We're all discouraged, we're all tired, we're all trying to figure out you know, how do we get through another day of looking at a green dot on a screen or teaching to an empty room or not being able to celebrate with our communities? Um, but I really think that Jesus is doing something special in this time. And I always like to say there'll be a day when we look back and we call today the good old days. And we'll say, do you remember the good old days? Do you remember the good old days of COVID when we did this and we did that? And what feels like you know, struggle now will simply sound like an adventure then, you know? So struggle is, to, any adventure is just struggle in retrospect. So just remember one day, this will be the wonderful adventure we were all on as we look back on it. Amen. John, thank you so much. JohnRinter.com for the book, Connection with John, other resources. John, thank you so much.